Hey there, welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting on a beautiful day. It is as, as if springtime has just taken over. I'm curious to see how long it lasts. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash Father Roderick. And uh, on my weekly show, Father Roderick to the Max, which I record specifically for the patrons, you, there's no other way to listen to it than by <laughs> joining that community. Uh, I just welcomed a whole bunch of new patrons, new people that have joined the community and that helped me to do the work that I do. If you want to join them, if you are able to join them, then I recommend you take a look over at patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. It was another busy week. I just came back from the northern part of the Netherlands. I went filming in a city called Groningen, and you have to pronounce it with a guttural Klingon G, so Groningen. <laughs> and uh, it was an interesting topic. It was actually a foundation that is um, buying churches that are no longer in use for religious uh, uh, purposes. As you can imagine... Um, in a country that is secularizing since the 60s here, uh, there are many churches that once were built for a, for a community, but now are just, you know, left there. And uh, the risk is, of course, that they are no, no longer maintained or repaired and then ultimately have to be demolished. Now, what I didn't know and what I discovered yesterday was that there is actually a huge concentration of medieval churches in the northern part of the country. This is also because one of the great uh, apostles of the Dutch Catholic Church, uh, St. Boniface, uh, Boniface, and uh, and also to a lesser extent St. Willebrord, were very active in the northern part of the Netherlands to spread the gospel and start churches and so every small community that had started a, a, a you know a christian assembly uh, they built their own churches and so what i didn't know was that in the northern part of the country a lot of these churches are still there and a lot of them are still intact however the situation in my country is now very different from mi- from the middle ages as you can imagine uh, one, one of the issues that a lot of villages deal with is that younger people travel to other parts of the country because there's more work, uh, the facilities are better, and so a lot of the villages have um, a much older uh, population and a shrinking population. And so all these beautiful medieval churches are basically left alone. This foundation uh, buys these these uh, monumental churches. Of course, we're all talking about uh, uh, nationally... Uh, acknowledged or recognized monuments, they buy them and they maintain them. And then, of course, they have to deal with the question, so what do we do? We're not just going to just repair this this building and just leave it there. What if we can find a new purpose for this building? Um, and I uh, visited three of those churches where they are kind of, kind of rethinking, what can you do with a building like this? Starting with the idea that, you know, this was once built by the local population. So this is not just um, uh, a building for 
the religious community, this is this building belongs to everyone in a certain in a certain way. And if the church no longer needs it, then maybe the rest of the community can still find a purpose for it. Now, as you can imagine, this is also con- a bit controversial, depending on who you talk to, because especially if you are part of a religious community that is no longer able to maintain the church and well, I've been working in many parishes where that's the case, where we have way too many churches compared to the number of faithful. Um, but if you grew up in a church or you had your your wedding, your children were baptized in a church, and all of a sudden you see them changing completely the the destination of that church, the, uh, the whole purpose, uh, the function of the church, that hurts. And so in some cases, parishes or dioceses decide to, it, that it's better to demolish the church which I think is something that should be your last resort, uh, especially if we're talking about monumental churches that have been built sometimes centuries ago. I think it's much more important to maintain the building. Also, maybe from a, from a faithful perspective, that you never know how history is going to change. You, you, you don't underestimate the Holy Spirit. If you demolish the church, it will never be back. That is, that is certain, and you're destroying culture, cultural heritage. Um, now, this, this foundation, what I like about it is that they start with, uh, uh, with the community itself. You know, what do people need? What are they looking for? This church was once built because people were looking for God. Uh, they wanted to have a, a place to come together. Well, people don't change that much over the century, so there's probably still a need to come together and to share their experiences and whatnot. Can we find another social purpose for this building that will basically continue that functionality? And uh, it was really great to see some examples. Like, we went to this uh, medieval, uh, beautiful medieval church. It was from the 13th century. I mean, I was like... I, I did not know that we had churches like this, this in the Netherlands. It's what you expect to see in, in France or in Ireland or in you know, Scotland or something like that. But it, it was partially destroyed. Um, but half of the church, like the choir where the altar used to be, it's still there. And the tower, the beautiful medieval tower, was also still um, standing strong. Now what they did was they created an educational um, experience around that building where children from schools in the in the province would learn about religious traditions about uh, feasts feast days in christianity in islam in other uh, religions and what they did was was i was completely blown away so we first visited the church well that was still looked like a, an old medieval church they had even recovered some frescoes on the ceilings which have been covered for centuries after the protestant reform because they 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 didn't want any uh, depictions any any um, images in their churches so they painted everything white that turns out to have been the the what what saved these frescoes because it was a protection layer so they've uncovered all those paintings it looked fantastic it's Still stunning to see something that has been painted like in the in the 16th century, and it still looks vibrant, and you still see all these uh, these Bible uh, biblical stories depicted on the ceiling. So that was already pretty cool, very very impressive. And but then we went into the tower, and I was not prepared for this. So the in the tower, which was a quite a big, sturdy medieval, almost like a fortress tower. Um, they 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 left the entire interior construction of the tower intact, but they 
they built two very modern staircases. Like, it looks like something out of Escher, if you've ever seen these, these um, uh, drawings from the, this Dutch artist, Escher, who creates these impossible perspectives. Well, something like that. But then on the inside of the tower, it was basically two spiraling staircases that were intertwined, one to go up and one to go down. And it, it, I was just already stunned to see that they could fit that into this relatively small space of the tower. But then, every time you went up a few flights, you would get to uh, an interactive experience that would teach you something about a Christian feast. So the first thing that I, that I saw was a, like a, a tiny little passage, and it looked very modern. They created all sorts of LED effects, and then you could... Uh, you had to uh, pull a cord, and all of a sudden, you would hear Christmas songs, and you'd see uh, like uh, silhouettes of, of the nativity being projected all around you. And then I noticed all sorts of details, little, little crowns in the decor. And so it is every, it's highly symbolic, but every um, step of, the, of your way up to the, to the top of the tower uh, gives. Um, the occasion for educators to tell something about that feast and at the same time have something like that that makes sounds, music, uh, has, you know, pictures and whatnot. And then the, the coolest thing was an elevator. So there's this, all of a sudden there's this metal elevator in the middle of that tower. It's like, how, how did they fit an elevator in this already? You know, it's incredible that they were able to fit in these two staircases, but... A, a, an elevator? Whoa. So anyway, well, but on top of the elevator, it said heaven. And you had to press a button. And then you, you saw the, the, the elevator go down. Like the indication was like heaven, uh, seventh heaven, and then uh, six, five, four, three, two, one. Bing! The door opens. And the entire interior of the elevator is uh, our projection screens. It's a very small elevator, so, so I stepped in by myself, of course, because of COVID, and I started filming. So I pressed the button, and it literally says, heaven. The doors close, and then around me, I see I, like uh, the meadows, the, the, the landscape that I saw, that you normally see around the tower, the real uh, northern uh, Dutch landscape. So cows and whatnot in the distance, and then you see the blue skies, and it was, a, it was the same kind of weather that it really was outside. So pretty strong illusion. And then all of a sudden, you hear sounds, and you, you start, you know, going upwards. And you get to the clouds, and it, this was like, if, have you ever read the sequel to, or, or actually the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Remember that crystal elevator? That's exactly the the, the experience that it was. It's like I'm flying over these clouds and then you see birds passing by and even an airplane that, that you know, goes under you, underneath you and you go higher and higher and all of a sudden you get this big bright light and then ping, you're in heaven. The door opens the, on, the, on the other side and you step out. And I was filming the entire thing. I was telling myself like, how... how what did I, what what did just happen? I mean, I know the physical size of this tower. I had the feeling that I went up at least five or six floors, and so I was very disoriented. I looked, how did this happen? And then the door behind me opens, and I noticed that the entire elevator had not been moving at all. It was just all an illusion. 
done with all these screens around me. But that was so weird. It's like, wait a minute. I did, the, I did not move at all. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's so fantastic. And then uh, you went up and then there were so many different things uh, that they did in a very, very small space. Super well done. I was a kid again. I was just like, I forgot that I was making a TV show. It was so cool. But anyway, according to the people that created this on the inside, they wanted to make sure that, of course, the monument itself was preserved and that you could remove all this educational stuff without damaging this this 13th century uh, monument. At the same time, they said it's incredible if you see how many kids want to be here. And then when they hear in school that they're going to visit a church. Everybody is disappointed. It's like, ah, oh, churches are boring. Ugh. And then they go through this experience. They learn a lot about religions and about the feasts. I mean, there was even like something about Pentecost and about uh, Easter, but also about Ramadan and etc. All that in that tiny little space. And even tourists, this is a beautiful area to go biking. Um, lots and lots of people visit this having no idea that on the inside of this old building you find such a, a revolutionary, you know, audiovisual experience. It, it was amazing. And I was, I was so stunned and, and impressed by just the ability to completely rethink the function of that building. And now they get like thousands and thousands of visitors every month. So what a difference with that church that nobody wanted to visit for the past 10 years. Another uh, church had a, a completely different setup. This was a, um, a church from the, I think from the 18th century or 19th century, early 19th century. So much more, much newer. Um, and that too, that entire village was a beautiful, typical Dutch village with a, a, a white windmill at the begin at the entry of the village. But it was literally like five farms and maybe two, three houses. It was so small. So obviously that church hadn't been in use for many, many years. But it was bought by that foundation. They restored it. And then they started to rethink, what can we do with this? Also knowing that this... It's not just a church that is impressive, but it's also the beautiful landscape. This is completely unpolluted landscape. Everywhere you look, 360 degrees, it's green meadows, cows, you know, windmills. It's gorgeous. So what they did was they, they completely refurbished the attic, the space between the, the, the interior ceiling of the church and then the roof. There's always a room for you to walk so they created something so that you could walk to the back of the of the of the roof basically and then they created this small uh, protrusion with windows so you can sit there with four people and then it's like a, a traffic tower on an uh, on an air, air um on a what you call it uh, uh <laughs> Oh man, the word escapes me. Where airplanes land and, and and whatever, you know what I mean. So it looked like a like an airplane traffic tower, and you had a view not not 360 degrees, but you know more than 180 degrees. Fantastic view of the surroundings. Almost felt like you were floating above above the the uh, uh, the, the green meadows. And again, uh, this this proved to be a huge attraction for people to 
enter that church, go upstairs, watch the beautiful landscape, and then the church itself is now used for um, for meetings for people that want to. You can go go and get a cup of coffee there. There is a cook that works there, so you can also he can also serve meals. Um, you can have if you want to do a like a heyday with your uh, with your company and kind of or or even like artists that do concerts or expositions it can all be done in that church and now it's like you have to really book in advance and i was um fascinated by this whole you know filming this story because of course we're everywhere in the western world we are facing this this question what what do you do with these old churches that nobody uses anymore you can of course just mourn it and say, well, we're just going to des- destroy it before it, it's turned into something that is unholy. But you can also kind of rethink it in a more positive way. What are people searching for? And can we preserve this legacy and give it back to the to the people in a way that is that makes sense to them? And, uh, and in many cases, um, small religious groups can then hire or rent the church from the organization to use it also for religious purposes but they don't have to carry the burden of the building which is currently destroying so many parishes over here because we have to pay everything ourselves and so like the majority of the budget goes to the building instead of to the community so for for also for religious groups this can be a a, a solution and well i like the whole thing of kind of rethink it and come up with something creative. And uh, I spoke with um, one of the people that um, uh, uh, accompanies these, these processes of transformation. And he said the, the thing you will have, always have to remember is that a church is like a body. It, it, you have a skeleton, you've got uh, hair and, and a nose and skin and whatnot. But the body dies if there's no blood circulation. What is the circulation? It's the people. So as soon as people are no longer in the building, the building dies and it decays and it, it gets lost. So if you want to revive it, the first thing you have to do is bring the people inside. And, and so I asked him, well, what is your advice for situations where the church is still in use by a religious co- uh, community, but they're struggling and they're not sure if the next generation will still you know, use it for religious purposes. He said, well, the, the, what you need to do now, open the church every day, find volunteers. And don't, you don't have to open the church immediately with a whole plan on how you're going to, you know, what you, what you want to do. The first thing you want to do is get people inside and just take a risk, he said. Don't be afraid to open your the doors of your church, even though may, people may be worried that, you know, you'll get vandalism and whatnot. He said, take the risk. It's better then that your church in 10 years from now is completely destroyed. So open your doors and see what happens and listen to the people. Make sure they can get a good cup of coffee. And around that cup of coffee, you will see that things will start to grow again because it's the people that will come up with ideas. I I was like, wow, what a story. I was super excited. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you. (laughs) How do you not like movies? They're predictable, like... The guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movievocation. I'm going to give it to you. Thank you, Chad. 
chat room for reminding me that the word that I was looking for was airport and runway and tarmac and air traffic control power. <laughs> if I didn't have you, I'd be lost. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about uh, movies and TV shows. As I mentioned in one of my previous episodes, here in this part of the world, uh, Disney Plus has introduced something they call stars that enables them to, um, to, to publish content that doesn't really fit the child-friendly brand of Disney, but is still something that they own the rights to. And it just opened last week, and I'm already enjoying so many of the movies. You've got Braveheart, Die Hard. Um, and one, one series that I hadn't finished watching was the Maze Runner trilogy. This is one of those like Hunger Games-style stories for young adults uh, based on, on a trilogy of books. And I'd seen the first, uh, the first uh, uh, movie in the franchise, and I liked it. It was very mysterious. You get these kids that wake up. In a world, they don't know what happened, but one morning they wake up and they're in this, they're surrounded by huge walls and they're in this garden and there are other kids there too that don't know what happened and they form like this micro society and they need to kind of figure out how to survive. It's a little bit like Lord of the Flies, um, but not as aggressive. And then they discover at one point that actually the walls that surround their community are, part, are walls of a huge maze. And then the movie is about, can we escape from this maze? I thought it was really a great idea, and I was just intrigued by the whole concept of what's outside that maze, and why are they locked inside and whatnot. Anyway, the second movie, I haven't seen it. And the third movie had been, has been postponed for more than a year. And this is because the, 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 the main, the principal actor... Um, the, uh, Dylan uh, O'Brien, who uh, played Thomas in The Maze Runner, uh, got injured on the set while filming um, a scene for, the, for this third movie. And at first, they had just stopped. It's a little bit what, what happened with Harrison Ford when they were filming The Force Awakens. It was an accident on the set of The Millennium Falcon. He broke his leg, and then they had to work around that so that he could recover. Um, and in the final movie, you, you hardly realize, well, you don't realize, but you hardly remember that this happened, uh, thanks to, of course, the magic of, uh, of movie making. So that's, uh, something like similar happened here. All the, fact, the thing was that the injuries proved to be much more serious than initially uh, thought. And so they basically had to pr uh, postpone the movie for almost a year and a half, I think. Uh, so he was, I think, in a harness, and there was this car chase, and then they something went wrong with the the rig on which he was suspended, and so all of a sudden he was taken off the car and then lowered, and another car slammed into him, and apparently, uh, like half of his face was destroyed by the accident. So he had to, had to go through extensive facial surgery, and it took months and months and months for him to recover. So. It just goes to show that you know, accidents can happen to anyone. Um, and we sometimes hear from other uh, actors as well, like Tom Cruise is known for that, that he always likes to do his own stunts. But on his last one of his last movies, he broke his foot, I think, or his ankle while jumping from one building to another. 
that is why digital technology is sometimes so welcome because then you can just have a digital actor, not even a stunt actor, you could just have a digital actor perform those stunts and then there are all sorts of tricks to make you believe that it was actually, you know, at one fluid motion and it was the original actor that did everything himself. So I can't wait to see how this story ends. Apparently from the reviews, the third movie is not the best. But I'm a completionist, especially with stories like this. I want to know how it ended. Plus, I don't trust reviews. It's like with The Hunger Games. Everybody said, oh, it's just every movie gets worse and it's not worth your time. And I don't know why, but The Hunger Games still for me is was one of those series that I rewatch from time to time. And I enjoy the story, every, every installment of the story. And... Um, yeah, so we'll wait and see. You'll, you'll hear it when I've uh, finished the trilogy. Still hooked on The Expanse. This is on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime here uh, in the Netherlands. I'm starting the second season, and it is just so good. Um, unbelievable. This is like Battlestar Galactica, the uh, Ron Howard version. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's different. It's, it's even more real in a certain way. Uh, what a cast, what a story, and just super well acted. Everything is great about that series. Then, I'm looking forward to March the 15th, when Netflix will premiere a new series, which initially I thought was going to be um, a live-action uh like movie series about the par- kind of the real pirates of the caribbean i thought it was just going to be a story turns out this is going to be more like a documentary with live action elements in it and uh it, from the looks of the trailer it is going to be quite quite something um david attenborough has is is doing the the narration so, you know, he doesn't really get involved in stuff that's not worth his time. Uh, he's very much in demand. So, it, uh, I, from the looks of it, let me just play a little bit of the trailer and uh, you can hear the sound. The 12-year war against England leaves Spain broke. Thousands of privateers lost their livelihood. This is a time of horrendous suffering. So here you see, while you hear all these experts talk about the historical situation, you see pretty good imagery of, you know, pirates and pirate ships. The Spanish fleet laden with gold and silver is wrecked, scattering a fortune. This is like discovering oil. I see no act against the Spanish in that. And so, the golden age of piracy begins. This is just the latest report sent back from Jamaica. The pirates are getting bolder. Cut the lines! Cut the lines! These swashbuckling outlaws bring murder and mayhem to the high seas. The brutality and the bullying and the predation of many of the captains that are known. You can't speak at length about Charles Vane without the word psychopath. Identify yourself. You don't know me. Anyway, that's just part of the trailer. I won't play the whole thing. But it looks really, really good. And I... We can't wait to see a little bit more of the historical background of uh, of all the, these pirate stories that we're so familiar with. And it may not be as fun as, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and, and similar stories, but it does look very much like you're watching another installment of uh, Jack Sparrow's adventures. Unfortunately, Jack Sparrow is in a little bit of legal trouble lately, so 
I don't think we'll see him anytime soon in uh, in any movie for that matter. All right, that's what I wanted to share with you. Let's move over to the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and their weird traditions, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I want to talk about something that's been on my mind for the past weeks. Um, and that is divine providence. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. Now, as you may know, my life is going through quite a few pretty radical changes lately. So I'm going to move to a new place, but I am not entirely certain where that will be and when I'll be able to... I know when I have to move out of this current rectory, but I'm not sure when I and, and where I will live, you know, weeks or months from now. And things are changing very rapidly. There are some developments. I have a lead on, on something else. But now there's a new lead that, that just came in this morning. And I was like, what? I, I can't believe how things are coming together, despite the fact that, you know, it's still rather unsettling to, to have to move and just all the logistics and, and at such a short notice. Um, so people tell me, and I tell myself, you got to trust God's providence. You know, he'll, he'll take care of you. And, you know, I'm kind of used to that terminology because I grew up a Catholic, so I know that that's what we say to each other. You know, God will provide. But it's always easier to just say that to someone else. You know, don't, don't worry, God will provide. And to, to apply it to your own life when you're in a situation where you're just freaking out, like, oh my gosh, how <laughs> this... Uh, how is this going to end? What am I going to do? How this... Uh, trust God's providence. And then I started to wonder, well, well, but isn't that just something that we tell each other? Is it, isn't it a bit cheap to just say that God will provide? As if we don't have to do much ourselves. Is, isn't it also um, kind of something you say, and, and never say this, to someone who's ill, uh, you know, maybe has got a... Uh, be, has been diagnosed with cancer or something like that. So like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll see. You'll get over this. Please never say that to someone if you don't know. If you're not a doctor, <laughs> you know, don't give people false hope. But sometimes we we're, we kind of want to we want to say something positive, but then we don't know exactly what to say. So often we kind of give these kind of vain encouragements, like, oh, you'll see. It's gonna it's gonna go all right. You know, um, thoughts and prayers. So in, in, to which extent is telling someone just, you know, God has a plan. How real is that? How realistic is that? And, and plus, is it, is it, does it uh, take my own responsibility away? And, and, and if things for some reason don't come together, is that a, a reason for me to blame God that he's not taking care of me? So, you know, in the, these cases, and this is just to go, goes to show even I, as a priest, I'm supposed to, you know, know things and be able to answer questions. But I also have plenty of questions myself. And the more, the older I get and the more experiences I go through, 
the more I constantly have to kind of rethink my faith, not maybe change my religious opinions, but still, but going deeper, you know, but what does it really mean? Oops, <laughs> I'm slamming the table here. What does it really mean? And uh, you say you believe it, but do you really? Do you really trust it? Uh, and do you can you ha really have faith? And if not, if you feel like, well, I don't, I don't know about this this providence, if it's real or not, do you really understand what you're saying when you're talking about God's providence? So, let me give you a few pointers that I found myself in the this is from the catechism of the catholic church which is always my kind of my go-to thing you can find the entire text searchable on the website of the vatican just go to vatican.va and then just or just google catechism vatican and it'll bring you to this uh, parchment themed website which is built like 50 years ago and hasn't changed since it's very bo bare bones, but, you know, it does the job. It's just text. And it, it starts with explaining, this is all about, you know, when you say the creed, you say, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the catechism takes that as a the framework and then goes into detail. So who is God the Father and what, what do we believe? What do Catholics believe about him? And then one of those entries there is God carries out his plan and it's, that is what we call divine providence. So it's God carrying out a plan. It's not just God has a plan somewhere in the attic or on his computer, and uh, that can be activated if necessary. Uh, no, God is constantly carrying out the plan. So it's something that is constantly in motion. Hmm? Always in motion, the future is. Hmm? <laughs> uh, creation, it says, has its own goodness and proper perfection, but it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the creator. I love this. This is a very... Um, there, there is, in, 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 in creation, there is evolution. There is progress. There is something... Something is ha always happening in God's creation. So, the catechism formulates it like this. The universe was created in a state of journeying. In Latin, you would say, in statu vie. So, it's always on the move. Don't you love that? And this is with even kind of regardless of, of the original sin and, and all the tragic events in history, but God, when he created heaven and earth, he wanted it to be constantly journeying and, and uh, journeying towards something which is the ultimate perfection yet to be attained, but, but which is in God's destiny. So the divine providence... Is, is a term that we use for the dispositions by which God creates or guides his creation towards this perfection. So you could say it's God walking with us in, 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 in the entirety of creation and, and helping us to keep walking and to keep journeying and to keep walking towards this perfection that God has in store for us. So it's a very hopeful journey. Um, so it is, uh, um, this is a quote, it's probably from one of the church fathers. I can't really, it has footnotes, but it's probably in a different part of the document. Let me see. 161, it's below. Oh, this is from the First Vatican Council, from a document called Dei Filius, so the Son of God. And according to this quote, by his divine providence, God protects and governs all things which he has made, 
reaching mightily from one end of the earth to the other and ordering all things well. For all are open and laid bare to his eyes, even, and this is interesting for those of you that like time travel, even those things which are yet to come into existence through the free actions of creatures. So even though I am free to do things, to go left or go right, for because God is eternal, every, even the things that I decide out of my free will, and God protects this free will, are already laid open for, for God. So there's no secret for God. He's not like looking at us and then like, oh, what's Father Roderick going to do? Is he going to go left? He's going to go right. Oh, he's going to go right. Oh, 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 man, what are we going to do? <laughs> no. For God, his plan already spans our time because God is above time. I know that that is super hard for us to, to think through. And in certain, to a certain extent, our, our philosophy doesn't have the, the ability to think this, but that's because God's matters always transcend us. If we can think it, it's not God. So anyway, what I like about this is that it's kind of this, like there's nothing that is that it goes beyond God's plan. There's nothing, there's not like an entity or, or the devil or whatever who is like secretly doing something that God is not aware of. That is, Im that is impossible in Catholic theology. God, in God, everything, in a certain way, is ordered by God in his overall plan, which also includes mishaps and, and tragedy and, and sin and suffering. That is one of the things that Jesus shows us in his life, that even what looks to our eyes as a defeat, as a total end of everything that he stood for, namely his death on the cross, in God's plan has a future. It, it is, even the suffering itself was part of God's plan. And it's not an evil, you know, vengeful plot. Let, let's, let's do some evil. Let's go, let's let my son go through all this because, you know, <laughs> no, it's not that. But it is like, no matter if it's good or bad, there's nothing that falls outside of God's providence in a certain way which gives you a certain inner peace now the, the question that i had immediately is first of all god's providence is that always mediated or can it also be direct what i mean is of course we believe that god can also act through other people so you can't really oppose god to for instance a doctor and tell your your physician like I don't need to come and see you. I Yes, I have COVID, but God will cure me. And then the doctor is, well, you know what? I could still help. No, 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 God will help me. Don't make that mistake. God also uses us to help each other, but it's still his will. It's still his providence. Sometimes you encounter people that help you, and you're just like, wow, you're such an angel. You're How did you know that I needed you right now? And the other person is like, I don't know. Coincidence? Well, we would say that's providence. And it's, but it's also possible that God sometimes does things directly. And in the Bible, you find a ton of examples of that where there is no mediation. Like Jesus does miracles, but it's not mediated. You can't really explain it by like, oh, well, like what you sometimes see in, in exegesis uh, when, uh, for instance, the multiplication of bread. And it's explained away. It's like, yeah, but everybody brought his own lunch and then they started sharing and then they noticed, like, if I share my sandwich with you, there's enough for everyone. That's, you com completely remove the autonomy of God's 
providence in that sense. You, you, you lower it to what we can understand and what is human. So the, the, the Bible and also the Catholic tradition always gives this prerogative to God to act directly in history without secondary causes. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't also work through us, which is in a, in a certain way also an honor to be part of God's plan, to be collaborators with God. That's what I love about Catholic theology and the way that, 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 that it looks at, at our activity. It's like God is a creator. He could create the Mona Lisa in one second, but you could also say his creative spirit inspires artists to create something that transcends the actual painting. And, and art, for me, is, has always been the sign of, yes, it is made, it's made by human hands, but it is inspired by something deeper and bigger and grander. So in that way, God's providence can, can sometimes miraculous things happen, but most of the time, not. But then it can be mediated and other people can actually help you and then you can still qualify that as God's providence. Another a question that I asked, like, who am I for God to waste his time on my little first world problems? You know, I'm worrying about where, where am I going to live? There are people that don't even know if they're going to live tomorrow. So shouldn't God be more, you know, busy with the people that are going through real struggles instead of just my little worries? Well, what I like is that um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, it said this can also go to very concrete and immediate things. Scripture is unanimous about that. God cares for all from the least things to the great events of the world and its history. There's nothing too small or too big for God. And uh, you see that also with, with Jesus, um, who you know heals the mother-in-law of Peter. But he also feeds thousands of people and makes uh, you know, uh, Lazarus rise from the dead. Um, but the, the, the mother-in-law of Peter just had a fever. So Jesus also shows that nothing is too small for him. That's why he has particular attention for, for children. When he says, you know, there's the, children are also an example. They also have their dignity in the kingdom of God. Nothing is, no one is too small or too insignificant. If you're a beggar, if you have leprosy, if you are handicapped, if you're blind, Jesus sees you, no matter how small you think you are. I love that about this whole concept of, of divine providence. So, yes, I can also bring my little worries to God, and he doesn't blame me for it. He, he will also take care of the small and the very concrete stuff. And then ultimately, uh, you know, should I believe in God's providence? Yes. Why? Because Jesus himself recommends it. And for me, that's important, what Jesus says. He, he says, you know, there is no need to be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of that. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be yours as well. So Jesus himself acknowledges that we often ask ourselves, what are we going to eat tonight? And, and it's not a problem to well, to bother God with that small stuff because he loves us. And as a parent, you would also take care of your children if they ask you for a, a cookie, right? 
It's not just like, oh, father or mother, I just need some life advice. Shall I join the army or start a career in finance? No, you take care of your kid no matter what it needs, even the small stuff. That's what makes you a parent. Well, it's very similar with God. And with that, I hope I explained a few things about the wondrous divine providence. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Okay, so I am a, a fan of books uh, about, uh, you know, these, these self-help categories that give you ideas on how to deal with problems in your life and stuff that doesn't go well. And I, I shared with you and also on my other show, The Walk, uh, how much I've learned from authors like this Scottish guy who really helped me deal with, with uh, things that don't go my way and to just accept that the world around you isn't always, go, isn't always good, that people are not always kind, and that sometimes your life will not go the way you want it to go. Deal with it. Just embrace it, but always look for what you can do to make it better. And that is a, like a life attitude that has helped me tremendously, especially in these times of change, where I have a tendency to always put myself in the, in the role of the, the victim and to complain about it and be mad and sad. None of that is useful. So always just turn the page and look for what can I do? How can I? Anyway, so, but there is also a part of that attitude is to accept the world as it is even if it's effed, as some of these authors will say, but using the full word. You just accept that sometimes things are just not good. And, you know, anyway. So uh, I, I read in that context the, the, what, the first book um, of Mark Manson called, um, uh, what was it? Now I'm confusing it with the other book. Oh yeah, the art, the subtle art of not giving a F. And I reviewed it a few months ago, I think. And that was, you know, kind of when I was first starting to kind of adopt that mindset that just deal with the world the way it is instead of this world that you, the way you want it to be and then just be frustrated that it's not. So I kind of liked that first book. It wasn't the best book, but it yeah, gave, gave me really some, some useful ideas. So, uh, when I saw that there was a sequel to it called Everything is Effed, a book about hope, that title inspired confidence. Like, hmm, I want to read that too. So I started to listen to, listening to the audiobook, and what a disappointment. Oh, it's so bad. It is so such a frustrating read. It's almost as if the, the publisher, actually I'm pretty sure it was the publisher that told him, oh, this book sells so well, write another book with F in the title and it will sell again. And, but then the author may have thought, well, but what am I going to write about? Everything is in this first book. Whatever, just write down your thoughts. So that's what he did. And somewhere in the middle of the book, he starts talking about religion. And he starts to do re religion, criticism of religions. And that's where, I, in my opinion, completely lost credibility. It's so weak and so cheap. And it's, it's, uh, it starts, so you want to create your own religion, do this and do that. And, and basically all the criticism is constantly, religion is exploiting people. Religion is used to convince people that are, that are in, in difficult situation, the poor, etc., to just you know, 
pay me money and I will give you hope. But that hope is just relative. And it's better to just accept that the world is effed rather than give your money to all these religious crooks that are giving you false hope. And, and to me, that is such a, it's a well-known criticism, but it's also the cheapest form of religious criticism that you can use because the facts don't agree with that. Look at how much generosity there is among... And, and of course, the, the, the kind of the caricature that he paints is real as well, but it's so reductionist to say that every religion is like that. And the true liberation is in freeing yourself of this whole idea of a god and hope after this life and, you know, just accept the world, everything is effed and just make the most of it. Like, tell that to someone who is truly struggling for his life, who is going to die, who lives in a country where you have nothing to eat. What kind of message do you have for these people? Oh, your, your religious beliefs are all nonsense and it's all your, your brain making up these stories. I'm thinking, mm -mm -mm, that, you, you cannot say that. First of all, it's, it's disrespectful, um, but you have no proof of the contrary either. Plus, I think it's a, it, it totally misjudges the role of faith in, in history and in people's lives. And even if you want to be an atheist and you cannot commit yourself to the idea that there is a God, at least you can value religion for its social impact on, on society and on the, the, what, what it helps people to do with their lives. And for many people, also for my life, faith is a huge source of inspiration and energy and it helps me to be happy to make the right, and to deal with grief and, and, and struggle in life. That in itself is already positive. So please don't tell me that my faith is worthless because it's just made up and it's false. You know, it's like a bit like what Marxism said about uh, about faith. Opium for the people. I think, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> I don't I, I don't think that does justice to the role of religion. So anyway, I started reading that and then pff, the, the book doesn't get better after that. So Thumbs down for the book, Everything is Effed. And, of course, I, um, I want to go into more detail one day and kind of deconstruct this type of criticism because, of course, the reason that, one of the, that this author and the books are selling so well is that a lot of people think in this schematic way about religion. And it's usually because they have such a limited idea of what faith is, what religion means, and they just follow the cliches that you see in social media and... This easy way of, of, of um, you see it, just go on Twitter, you know what I mean. Anyway, next topic. The scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friend. I had to wrap things up because I have an appointment. But um, I just wanted to let you know that I saw an article. Explain, we were talking about the Mars rover, right? Well, apparently, this Mars Perseverance rover is powered by nothing else but a 1990s iMac processor. How cool is that? I knew that a lot of this, this you know, these spacecraft use relatively old but proven technology. It's always risky to put brand new stuff in there. How often does your, you know, new Windows installation give you a blue screen of death or, you know, the, the bugs need to be ironed out? So they usually take very old technology because they know it's reliable. So according 
to a, an article on New Scientist, the Perseverance rover is powered by a PowerPC 750 processor, which was first used in Apple's original 1998 iMac G3. You know, these see-through desktops. It's amazing. So there is no M1 in, in these rovers, uh, but the, the Perseverance is is powered by Apple technology. How cool is that? Just wanted to share that with you. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Actually, I, I don't think I had to play this, uh, <laughs> this jingle because the previous item was also about technology. I just wanted to let you know that I'm still looking into getting uh, like a mobile solution in case I have to move and I can't go into this new home right away. I need to find a, like a mobile setup that will enable me to do relatively powerful editing. And I don't want to buy a... a, a uh, like a, an Intel-based PC, because I know that, that the moment you want to render, etc., it, it just, it, that thing gets hot. Usually these PC laptops are very heavy, uh, clunky, not much battery power, and I'm really, really, really interested in these new Macintoshes or these Apple MacBooks, MacBook Airs, powered by M M1 technology, because apparently they outclass even i9 processors. Um but I'm still kind of waiting it out because there are, again, new rumors this week about Apple launching new versions of their MacBook Pros, a 14-inch and a 16-inch version, which will feature new screen technology. Apparently, it will still have the M1 processor. It won't have the like an upgraded version, but the screens will be bigger and better. And what to me is very interesting is that this new leak again confirms that probably these new Macs will have more ports, an SD port, which to me is so vital because that is how I record every single episode of my TV show. I, I, I need, a, a, I don't want to mess around with dongles, especially because I like to travel light. It's also probably going to be a, a, um, outfitted with an HDMI out port so that you can hook it up to a monitor e more easily than with that one USB-C port that you then need to split up with dongles again and just HDMI is still the standard for so many screens. So uh, here's hoping that um, the rumors will be true and that Apple will introduce soon one of those MacBook Pros with more ports and this D card port. What more can I ask for? It's so standard in the PC world, but Apple just thinks that we don't need that stuff. It's time they start listening to their users. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. I gotta go, but um, if you want to listen to more of my shows, go to fatherroderick.com. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. See you next week.